Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Biodiversity isn't just for the rainforest. We live in a highly developed area where people often get on planes to visit nature, but there's ample preserves here with lots of natural wonders. The Chicago area actually boasts more native plants than any national park. We'll talk about where they are and how people can help preserve biodiversity right here at home. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Through a combination of foresight, luck, and gritty devotion, we have some of the most biologically diverse landscapes here, situated among a metropolis of 10 million people. Lots of people don't know about this region's great biodiversity, but we're going to talk about two people who know a lot about it. With me is Gerald Wilhelm. He is co-author of the book, Flora of the Chicago Region, A Floristic and Ecological Synthesis. It is a magisterial 1,400-page documentation of nature in our area. He was a botanist and ecologist at the Morton Arboretum for many years and now is director of research at the Conservation Research Institute. It's great to have you. Thanks for coming. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And Mike McDonald is here. He's author of another book that is magisterial in a visual way, uh, My Journey into the Wilds of Chicago, and it details this area's natural wonder with uh, text and some of the most gorgeous photography on the planet. Nice to talk with you again, Mike McDonald. Great to be back. Thanks. Um, You know, Mike, I've been saying this uh, statistic on the promo and here in the beginning of the show that the Chicago area region boasts more native plants than any national park. And you've you've kind of done the numbers and has helped work this no, uh, through. Uh, how how can that be? Okay, so Jerry's the man here. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> and he came up with the book Flora of the Chicago Region over many years with lots of help as well and decades. And he came up with the number eighteen hundred sixty seven for vascular native plant species in the Chicago region within <clears throat> excuse me seventy five mile radius. But that includes Berrien County and. Uh, Michigan because it's 75 miles and, you know, a little bit further out to DeKalb. And so I said, yeah, but how many really, based on his book, are in the immediate Chicago region, like 50 miles? Let's just say the six-county region. So I went through Jerry's book and looked at 3,149 dot maps or whatever a couple <laughs> different times over a weekend and just just checked and double-checked. I went through those pages many times, a couple times, and I entered in the spreadsheet, and I came out with the number uh, of uh, 1,608, could be off by a few, not much, uh, for uh, the six-county region. That's a miraculous thing. Um, Jerry, this uh, big number here that we've got, I, I guess part of it is 
that there's been a lot of devotion to uh, plants in this area for, for a couple of generations of naturalists here. Your book is an outgrowth of other previous editions of uh, similar books uh, with people you've worked with over decades. Mm-hmm. How did you uh, – can you tell us a little bit of the story of uh, how you uh, came to compile such a uh, accurate big plant digest like this? Well, Floyd Swink began it back in the in the uh, really after World War II, and people, uh, a lot of naturalists in the Chicago area were having to deal with Fernal's eighth edition of Gray's Manual, which, which contained over five thousand species. And they asked Floyd if he would condense that a little bit, include only those plants that were in the Chicago area. And Floyd was with the Morton Arboretum. Floyd Swink at that time. At, at that time, originally, he was with the Cook County Forest Preserve District at the Little Red Schoolhouse. And then he came to work at the Morton Arboretum. And he was typing this stuff up himself. He was typing it up himself uh, based upon his own field notes. And he went out and included uh, Berrien County because this was within an easy field day uh, for a Chicagoan. And that's the reason. And it all went out to DeKalb County, uh, Illinois, down all the way to Kankakee, Illinois, and even Jasper and Newton County, Indiana, and up into Walworth, Racine, Kenosha, Wisconsin. And this actually, because Lake Michigan sticks itself down into the middle of the continent like this, we have in the region, and the reason it's so rich is it has the eastern deciduous forest on the east and the beach beach maple forest. It has the bogs in the northern forest up in the north. It has the great, it's on an interface with the great uh, prairies of the west. And because of the Lake Plain District south of the Valparaiso Moraine uh, in Indiana and Illinois, uh, it has lake plain plants. So it's a, an incredibly biodiverse, almost several biomes within one very small area. I think most people look at it as a boring region, <laughs> you know, from a landscape point of view. But when you really do the geology of it, it's got so many different kind of places that it's uh, – you. there's the Sand County down in Kankakee. Yeah. There's all sorts of areas with all sorts of different places for plants to grow. Unfortunately, because of the visionary um, of the vision of people early in the last century around Chicago, uh, the, a lot of those areas were preserved. The Forest Preserve District was established about the same time. That established a lot of preservation. The Nature Conservancy was born here in the Chicago area with, with George Fell, and and the whole idea of preserving and Chicago being a relatively new town, unlike New York City or Philadelphia or whatever. The uh, Chicago still had remnant around, and so people at the time were aware of the fact that we were chipping away at something that was irreplaceable. And so these people really, we have them to thank for the reason there's so much biodiversity left in this great metropolitan region of the world. Very few people anywhere in the world can step outside and take a train or or a car just a few dozen miles and see such diversity. Um, Mike, tell us about some of these places that you like to go to and photograph and um, have put in your book. Well, I chose these places because they're showcases, just like the national parks are showcases for the nature around the country. And so the region is filled with really beautiful preserves. But these places rise to a level where they really talk – 
they really talk in a way. They do speak to me. They do speak to you just by walking in one. You can really tell the difference between that habitat and a woodland near your house that isn't restored. You don't have to be an expert. You just walk out there and there's something different. And it's all about biodiversity. As Jerry was telling me earlier, I said, you know, there's not many, I was telling him, you know, it it just looks more open. And he goes, yes, but that's because it's more biodiverse. And that's true because it doesn't look like it's as biodiverse, but you don't have one thing taking over the landscape. And so I go to places like Bluff Spring Fen in Elgin, which is, it's a fen, it has an oak savanna, it has a prairie um, throughout the season. If you go every, you could go every week there and you'll find something. You can go to uh, uh, Psalm Prairie Grove in Northbrook, and <laughs> that's another place you can go every day. Illinois Beach Nature Preserve uh, in Zion, where it's a sand prairie, and the, uh, you have the beach, and you have all these other habitats there, including the oak savanna. And then, like for example, uh, at the end of May, you'll get sand coreopsis as far as you can see along the lake. And then if you go to Indiana Dunes around that time, uh, right at the beginning of June, you'll see uh, lupins flowing over the high dunes like like being in Montana, and you almost want to cry. I'm talking with Mike McDonald, author of My Journey into the Wilds of Chicago, and Dr. Jerry Wilhelm. He is the author, co-author of uh, the book Flora of the Chicago Region. We're talking about biodiversity here. Uh, you know, when Mike is talking about these places and walking into an open field and seeing what's there, um, when... I think a lot of people are used to kind of a manicured environment, uh, a um, something like going to the botanic gardens and seeing everything in bloom all the time practically. But when it comes to real nature out there, it's going in different arcs. You've got uh, things that are going kind of cacophonating in the landscape in a way that's different and really cool, actually. Um, That's the kind of thing you've got to try to document and find the plants when they're popping up. It's a little more subtle. uh, In a garden setting, uh, the landscape architect uh, or creator of the garden will plant plants maybe on one-foot centers, all right? In nature, uh, in just uh, just two two square feet or two feet by two feet, you have – you can have – is in a healthy system that's been burning on a regular basis, uh, as many as 25 species in that one small area. That's amazing. That's 25 species, many, many more dozens of plants, but they all aren't evident at one time. And so what you see in nature is, and you can't intellectualize it, but you see the warp and weft of life, sort of the way of looking at a, at, at a well-done silk versus a um, maybe a well-done uh, a gunny sack. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a whole different... Uh, scale at which life is occurring, and that consilience of all those things growing together is what makes it so healthy and what makes it so awesome. I wonder if you could tell us a little about how you got involved with this project, because you go into it in the back of the book, you tell a story, and I'd I'd love to get a miniature version of that, because it's pretty awesome. You were a a young man who, uh, in the 70s, thought all nature was was nature. It was all the same. It didn't make any difference. If it was green, it was good. Uh, that was my impression. Uh, I was a fish biologist at the time, but I was drafted in the Army. And right around the time, you know, the National Environmental Policy Act was signed into law January 1st, 1970. Right after that, or right about that same time, the Corps of Engineers had proposed to put uh, larger locks, more locks at Lockport and at Joliet. 
and the, and they're moving the channel from twelve from nine feet to twelve feet. The uh, the new National Environmental Policy Act required an environmental impact statement. This is a new thing uh, in the world. You were doing one of the first. Um, I was conscripted in the Army, and Army personnel screwed up and sent me to the Waterways Experiment Station, where I avoided Vietnam and started working on this AIS, this environmental impact statement, with a major and a few other guys in a new organization established by the Corps of Engineers. Well, anyway, they wanted to put all this dredge material and disposal material onto 50 potential, what they call pot- potential spoil sites along the Des Plaines River. So they were dumping the mud. They wanted, so they wanted to, dump a place the mud. to dump the mud somewhere. They wanted to dump the mud somewhere, and we had to uh, figure out which among the 50 sites would be the better. And so we've fi- we found these couple of experts at the Morton Arboretum, Floyd Swink, whom I mentioned earlier, and I went out with him the first day, and he told me every plant there was, this is in October, a little bit of snow on the ground, actually, and there were weeds and sticks all over, and he would say the Latin names over and over, and I would write them down dutifully, and we'd go on to the next one. It was the same Latin names over and over because they were mostly weeds. <laughs> and I thought, wow, wow, what's all this? looks like nature. Why would you want to spoil here? And then I went out the next day with Ray Schulenberg, who also was with the Morton Arboretum, and he did the same thing, but at the end of each site, he'd do something a little differently. He would say, Jerry, uh, you can spoil here. You can't hurt it. It could grow back. And I thought, whoa, there's a heavy thought from a a mega uh, eco-freak telling a factor from the Corps of Engineers that we could put mud on this place. What is he getting at? And so he kept saying over and over again. Well, the next day, he went out, and about middle way through the third day, uh, on at what the Corps had designated as spoil site C2, we crossed a little black mustard berm, uh, a berm covered with black mustard, a weed from Europe, and then stepped into this little glen, uh, and Ray put his shoulder on my hand, and he, 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 on my, he put his hand on my shoulder and held me back, would not let me step in. And he read off a whole list of names I hadn't heard in three days. And he said, Jerry, don't spoil here, for this is America, and it will not grow back. (laughs) And I just got weak in the knees, and I looked at that little piece of America, and I did not want to live another day of my life not knowing whether or not I was in America. So I went back to Warren County, Mississippi, and started learning plants. And fortunately, uh, at the end of the my term in the service, Ray needed an assistant, and I got to work for Ray Schulenberg and Floyd Swing at the Morton Arboretum. And that, that meadow you were looking at, that was a real yeah. prairie remnant. It was a real remnant, and actually, although Ray didn't see it at the time, uh, later in August of 1974, we discovered the federal, what later became federally threatened, uh, a leafy prairie clover, known only from there on all God's earth, there, and a little glade near Nashville, Tennessee. Wow. And that was the leafy prairie clover. Uh, there, uh, and that turned out to be the famous Lockport Prairie, about which you may have heard. And that is now a nature preserve and uh, managed by the Will County Forest Preserve District. It's, uh, it sounds like we were lucky that that happened. And, and in so many instances where there are real native prairies, it was locked. It was lost. And they say the EIS sort of worked. I think one of the reasons that the project didn't go forward was because they wouldn't put a tw- uh, 12-foot channel uh, at Lock and Dam 26 in Mississippi, which obviated the need to put 12-foot channel on the, on the, on the Illinois. And so, but whatever, uh, that was a, one of the first environmental impact statements ever done, and uh, it allowed us to get into and understand and develop metrics for uh, how to discover whether or not, oh, see, the National Environmental Policy Act 
uh, asked us to ask to ex- examine the degree to which the impact on an area was irreversible or irretrievable. And Ray Schulenberg was the first fellow in all of America, really, that I had researched, who actually brought that into a practical application by saying, this is a place you can spoil on, this is a place you can spoil on, but this one, Jerry, is America. You cannot spoil here. It will not grow back. I'm talking with Dr. Jerry Wilhelm. He's co-author of the book Flora of the Chicago Region, A Floristic and Ecological Synthesis. It is a 1,400-page documentation of nature in our area. Also with me is Mike McDonald, author of My Journey into the Wilds of Chicago. We're going to be right back after the break, and we would entertain a few phone calls about the great nature in this area. If you want to talk with us about it, 312-923-9239. 312-923-WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about biodiversity in this region with Dr. Jerry Wilhelm, co-author of the book, The Flora of the Chicago Region, and Mike McDonald, author of My Journey into the Wilds of Chicago. We'll take a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. And um, before we get to the calls, I wanted to ask uh, a little more. You, you told the story about going out and identifying the different places uh, that uh, you could spill and not spill, and you found the native prairie. And you ended up working on this project with those guys yeah. and uh, identifying every plant in the area. Um, uh, can you explain a little bit about what that was like? Because it sounds like people who had questions or uh, ideas about identifying new plants have come to you guys for decades, and you are the source that people go to to uh, to just figure out what's going on. Well, we Floyd started. He, he published his first checklist of the Chicago flora in 1969, and then he published an update, which actually I helped him on because by the 1974 I was working with him and Ray, and he published an update in 1974, and then he and I together, uh, because people needed a way to uh, to be able to identify plants themselves, we put keys into the 1979 edition so people could actually take a plant in hand and with a hand lens. Uh, it is hoped use, by using our key guide, uh, discover what kind of plant it was, and then they could read about where it grew, discover uh, whether it was native or not. And also in that book, I had Floyd put the all of the non-native species in an italic type font, which he was able to do uh, because he typed that on an IBM Selectric typewriter, <laughs> which had an had a, a typing element ball that could replace uh, with a and a, a, a ty- standard typeface ball with an italic type, and he didn't miss a lick. So that book is is even though it was typed on a typewriter, 
has all of the non-natives, because we wanted people, if they're out in a meadow or out in a prairie, to be able to sit down in it and start identifying plants. And if the plants they were getting all the time were these uh, italicized ones, they could realize that they were, well, just in a typical sort of weedy place. On the other hand, if the plants they were collecting or picking up and identifying were standard typeface, they would suddenly become aware they were in holy ground. They were in the actual remnant landscape, remnants that had been taken 15,000 years to form after the last glacier, maybe. And uh, so we wanted people to be visually to be able to relate to the fact that they were in some very, somewhere very special and this is this worked. I mean, people then came to you and and discovered new species right here in this region. Yeah, they did. That was, and people, oh, that, yeah, people would go out because we put dots in all the counties from which we knew the plants. And people were regularly coming in and say, didn't you know that this grew in Cook County? Or didn't you know that that grew in, in Grundy County? And they put that in their herbarium. And the next edition, we could have that. But by going in, another thing you must know, that with the... Forest preserve districts, particularly Cook County and uh, somewhat Lake County, and a lot of the forest preserve districts have, in recent years, have been burning and managing the lands well. And with the burning, people have discovered that these natural areas that were languishing in the 70s and the 80s were now just exploding in all manner of species. We didn't even know were there. And so the forest preserves have really been managing well these natural areas, uh, burning large tracts and landscape-scale burns that are bringing biodiversity back in spades. And you've got a picture at the beginning of your book of a uh, St. John's wort species yes. that is Floyd's, uh, that Floyd got named after him, Floyd Swank. Right. We, we named this. that plant after Floyd because it had all these years been, been passed off as Calm's uh, St. John's wort. Uh, but we realized that it wasn't calm St. John's wort. It did not have the, the same morphology. So uh, Laura and I described that in honor of Floyd Swink, who mentored both of us. And uh, your co-author in the book is? Laura Rarica. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is with the Forest She's with Preserves? the Cook County Forest Preserve. And uh, she and her husband, uh, Chris Anger, are two of the finest biologists I have met in my life. And, and the Morse Preserve is, is, is very lucky to have them. And we're going to kind of get back to their contribution in a minute. But we've got a few phone calls on the line with us talking about nature in the Chicago region. 312-923-9239 is the number. And, Tom, you are on WBEZ. Great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine, Tom. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm calling from Lake Forest. And I grew up in Bannockburn, and I noticed both areas. We've got tons of buckthorn growing, um, and it's the first thing that comes out in the spring, and it seems like it chokes everything out and very aggressive. And I was wondering, any uh, advice on getting rid of it? I've seen it even growing in our open lands areas and the nature areas in Lake Forest. Uh, Jerry, this is the war on buckthorn. Everybody's got it. Uh, And Lake County is actually devoted to getting it all out of their forest preserves. They have made a mission to get it all out. Uh, That's true, and there are... Uh, several tactics that get that done, and uh, Lake County Forest Preserve personnel would be happy to give you uh, exam- uh, tactics or approaches to removing that buckthorn and what would be the follow-up management. In some cases, the woods are so choked with buckthorn that the, land, that the soil beneath has been so depleted that it may require some uh, and, some therapy, you and, might say. And buckthorn is an interesting plant. It kind of uh, puts something out into the soil that uh, makes it not good uh, for it, other yeah, plants. It puts uh, uh, somewhat lilopathic to certain things, but the main problem with buckthorn is it uh, creates such shade that few plants can live under it. 
and it creates and it drops seeds that are going to be there years right. in That's advance. That's why you need to burn. So once you've cleared all the way the buckthorn, if one of those little then you need to burn uh, and uh, follow up with herbicide. Uh, until you uh, until you've excised it, and then go into the next approaches. With how do you take what's rep, what's left in your woods, and begin the process of rehabilitating it, and bringing it back to what it can be? Now, uh, just to give people an idea who've never heard of buckthorn before, it is. Uh I've seen statistics about how much leaf cover it is in an, in in Lake County and stuff that are it's enormous and it's a it's a large uh, shrub kind of a, a, a shrub that uh, is is maybe fifteen feet tall at times and it's yeah. everywhere. Yeah, you can identify it in the fall because after the leaves of the native plants have dropped their leaves, the leaves of buckthorn are still bright green. So the woods look like they have a a rough of green foliage. Uh, underneath the, the fallen leaves are the oaks and the ashes and, and elms. And uh, another a shrub that's just as ubiquitous and just as deadly is the uh, Amur honeysuckle and some of the other, other honeysuckles. So it's a bit of a problem, and, uh, but the forest preserves have really uh, addressed that and are working hard to uh, get rid of it. It's a little bit like a cancer uh, in that it does not belong in, in healthy tissue. And so it really has to be excised. And so while people might initially put off at the idea they'd have to use herbicides, they uh, they must uh, – this is where you have to sometimes go in with surgery and remove uh, from healthy tissue, poor t- uh, unhealthy tissue. So also must we do that with buckthorn, uh, honeysuckle, and a few other things. Yeah, it's um, – so <laughs> uh, buckthorn is the bane of – uh, all restoration projects and, and all forest preserves all over the region. Uh, where it's gotten established, once you get the place healthy and start burning, it, it's really not much of an issue because the little seedlings uh, germinate and the, the fire will, will damage them and they don't really belong here. All right, let's go to Vicki in Villa Park. We're talking about uh, biodiversity in this area, 312-923-9239. Hi, Vicki. Um, I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, I want to thank both of your guests. I uh, studied the original Swink and Wilhelm book as a student at University of Illinois downtown many years ago, and it really opened my eyes to the treasures that we have in this area with our natural flora. And I'm wondering, with the new uh, book and with the work that Mike McDonald is doing with Chicago Wilderness Now, if you're hearing any discussion of uh, sort of creating Chicago as a, a biodiversity sphere um, because of, you know, what we have here as, as a way of uh, promoting, you know, further restoration, further preservation of what's left. I, as I drive through my area in DuPage County, I see all the little remnant spaces of wilderness slowly being developed. And it's very hard to see 300-year-old oaks coming down to build another you know, shopping mall. Um, and so I'm just curious if the guests, you know, if there's been any discussion of something like that, like I say, as a way to um, uh, save more of the area that we do have left and uh, recreate wilderness where it's possible. Um, Mike, have you ever heard of a biodiversity sphere? What is that? Hey, Vicki, are you thinking about maybe consolidating the preserves in some way or what's your, yeah. what, what's, what do you mean by a biodiversity sphere? Well, when you're in, in global environmental, you know, things, there's uh, uh, this idea of sort of uh, uh, 
what do you call it, designating a region, like a large geographical region, as an area where there's a special um, quality to the flora and fauna that's there that is not reproduced anywhere else in the world. And and Chicago certainly kind of meets some of that definition. Um, You know, and so some, you know, I mean, I'm kind of really thinking out there, but uh, like I say, given with the new edition of the book really highlighting just how much we have here um, and, you know, as a way to uh, even set aside actually like even more land and like I say, even move towards more, um, you know, natural landscaping where it's possible. I think like uh, if you consider it more of a logical and not a physical uh, formation of preserves, for example, you have several preserves like, you know, you have Lake County Forest Preserves, Cook County. There's so many management agencies that I wonder if they could consolidate that work. But I think designating it as something could create greater awareness and and kind of like what Chicago Wilderness was doing for all those years. Thanks a lot for the call, Vicki and Villa Park. We'll take a few more at 312-923-9239. Brian, you are on WBEZ. Hello, Brian. Oh, hello. I I stepped in the car and turned the radio (laughs) on, and I said, my God, is that Reverend Wilhelm? (laughs) And uh, you have to be the most inspirational person um, in uh, environmentalism I've ever ever met. the, I helped Sandy occasionally on Burns, and uh, and you turned me on to the uh, How to Know series of books when I was hunting protozoa and water bears. But um, um, my real question is, is, I know, and I'm so excited to hear about your new book. Everybody's been waiting for it. And um, in this, this, this political extremity that we're extreme that we're living in or experiencing do you have any suggestions on how we could help preserve the the EPA rather than damn it? Because um, we have a, 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 a crazy attack here that, and and it's proving that the, the EPA is useless by it being tore down. All right, and, let, um, let's get a response here. And uh, what do you think? I mean, nature is always under attack somehow, it seems. I think nature's largest attack is our obliviousness to its uniqueness and how special it is and how hard it is, how, how irreplaceable it is once we, once we let it languish or destroy it. So I think uh, really supporting the efforts of forest preserves uh, and encourage the efforts to burn and to manage the remnants are here. They own a lot of it already, or and the Nature Conservancy and the Nature Preserves Commission also does. But uh, I don't think it's much a federal issue as it is local people and local communities having taking an interest in the local forest preserves and local remnants and encouraging the proper management of them and the pre- preservation of them. Uh, the burning really is a uh, is a it, it's. It's it's so powerfully uh, powerful a tool that uh, it's it's inspiring as to what's happening, but uh, I think I really think it's a, a really more of a local issue, and I don't think we should depend, or I don't think we can depend on uh, remote bureaucrats in some distant land to help us take care of a a little remnant prairie along Highway One, say south of uh, Saint Anne. I think that really has to come from the people locally. These preserves are, by definition, preserved. So the attacks are coming from within with the invasive species that we've been talking about earlier, and we need volunteers to get out there and 
help out with that. Uh, absolutely. Um, let's go to Peggy. You're on WBEZ. Thank you, Jerome. Um, I am a volunteer with Citizens for Conservation in Barrington, and I wanted to respond to your earlier caller who was asking about uh, connecting some of the, the natural areas. And uh, we have a major uh, initiative going on in Barrington. We've started a couple of years ago called the Barrington Greenway Initiative to do just that. It's a, it's a collaboration between the Lake County Forest Preserves, the Cook County Forest Preserves, Citizens for Conservation, Audubon uh, Great Lakes, um, the Bobolink Foundation, and I'm not sure if I'm missing any, but but the the idea being that we're all we're all our, our goal is is preservation and restoration of the land, but by linking we're able to do a lot more than each of us could do separately. We're also connecting individual homeowners' properties in our program called Habitat Corridors, which is encouraging individual homeowners to create better habitat in their yards as stepping stone habitat. So it may not be contiguous with the rest of it, but it still works in the broader area. Where This goes all the way from the Fox River on the north to Poplar Creek Forest Preserve on the south end. So ultimately we're, we're trying to get to 4,000 acres. And that's uh, my friend Peggy Simonson. I'm, I, I'm a member of Citizens for Conservation. I'm the cover boy of their uh, their their uh, newsletter uh, for the Habitat Corridors program uh, this month. And uh, so it, it, she's talking about uh, you know bringing forest preserves more together with as much green stuff as we can and creating more life. That's the answer. And <laughs> and it's it's happened. It's it's happening, and it's. Blossoming, it's, it's very inspiring. And uh, Mike, do, do you see other communities? I mean, this is what's happening in the Barrington area. Where they've got some really nice forest preserves in that area. Um, is this happening in other regions in Chicago? I'm not sure. I'm sort of – I have my own way of doing things and my own approach, and I sort of stay out of the fray, and I communicate to, like, the individual and get them excited about nature. And whatever happens around me, I know about it sometimes, but – I'm sort of I have a different approach to this. <laughs> Mike McDonald's the author of My Journey into the Wilds of Chicago, the visually magisterial book detailing this area's natural wonders. And Dr. Gerald Wilhelm is co-author of the book The Flora of the Chicago Region, a Floristic and Ecological Synthesis, a magisterial 1,400-page documentation of nature in our area. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Jerry Willem, co-author of the book, The Flora of the Chicago Region, a Floristic and Ecological Synthesis, and Mike McDonald, the author of My Journey into the Wilds of Chicago. And uh, one other thing I wanted to underline about the um, book, The Flora of the Chicago Region, is it's not just all the plants in the region. 
under each entry, you have all the bugs who like the plants, um, which is almost like a miracle of, <laughs> of, of accumulation of knowledge. Um, I think most people have gotten involved with monarch butterflies and the milkweed plant. And a lot of people know about the, you know, important relationship between that bug and that plant. But it goes on ad infinitum in nature. And this is how nature works. Yeah, nothing grows alone. And uh, the my co-author, Alora Marika, really is an, one of our nation's authorities on the bees and the wasps and the ants. And she also is, uh, well, almost all of the insects. In this book, then, all of her observations on any insect or animal uh, that has an intimate relationship with any of our plants, we have included in there. So she's included over 400 species of bees, over 250 species, over 250 species of wasp, over 100 species of ants that all have intimate relationship with our plants. And she is uh, the one to talk to about this because she can go on and on and on. Uh, I don't think, you know, I, I've been trying, every year I try to learn a few more things, a few more plants, a few more insects, a few more birds, a few more trees. And um, that that's the kind of thing that reveals the relationships. Yeah. And they are so many. Yeah, the, the relationship, she uh, uh, draws out, uh, outlines a lot of those relationships in some detail. All of, you could go to the Galapagos Islands and have, uh, or anywhere on the earth, and not get as interesting a natural history as you could by looking at local plants and local insects and reading local, Laura's stories about how they interact, interact with each other. It's absolutely amazing. It's awesome. It's just, uh, and it's endless. Uh, we're going to take a couple more phone calls here at 312-923-9239. And Carrie, you are on WBEZ. Hi. Um, my name is Carrie, by the way, with a T, but um, I know it's hard to hear. Um, my question is, I want to put a beehive in my yard. I live in Rolling Meadows, and I live by um, the park right here, and there's um, Salt Creek runs through it, and they've put um, natural, they're trying to, you know, keep the banks good, and they've put, you know, um, the natural flora and fauna over there, for butterflies, but I wondered if I put a beehive in my backyard, if it would help. Well, um, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> the, the the beehives uh, that you're familiar with are the old world uh, uh, Apis mellifera, the honeybee, which isn't native here. So most of our native bees actually nest in the soil. And so the reason most of our native bees are confined to remnants is because that's where our soil has been the least damaged. So there are, of the 400 species of bees we have, most of those are confined to remnants that have still preserved soil. And it's these bees all have individual and curious relationships with a lot of our plants. But the honeybee and the beehive uh, would work just as well if you had a, a meadow somewhere with some, uh, you know, uh, meadow flowers in it. But they aren't necessarily going to enhance or amplify the uh, health and well-being of a, of a natural remnant. So, like, the natural remnant by your house is creating its own bees in the soil all the time. And so if you want to make more native bees of the 400-some native bees that are out there, you make them in your yard with native plants and not uh, mulching the soil because the bees got to live in the soil. That's right. The soil has to be built by the 
the fibrous breakdown of fibrous root systems, such as the native grasses and sedges in our woodlands and in our prairies, and that's the kind of soil that really becomes keeps the soil moisture. It gets kind of technical, but uh, that's the the habitat for our native bees. Most of our native bees is in the soil. Let's At, take uh, another. Let's take another quick call from Evanston. You're on WBEZ, Diane. Hello, Diane. I think I can hear the thing going in the uh, Nick, you're on WBEZ. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, I'm with a group called Urban Rivers, and one of the things we're doing is we're putting these floating gardens in the Chicago River. And we kind of have an internal discussion going, and I wanted to see if you guys could weigh in on it. Um, one of the species we're looking at is uh, cattails, trying to see if we could introduce some native cattails on our uh, artificial wetlands. And I, I know there's some controversy around them, specifically with the hybrids that are kind of uh, – becoming somewhat of an invasive. And I wanted to see what your opinion is on them. Well, the, the, you're right. Uh, 95% of the cattails that are seen today are the hybrid cattail between the narrow-leaf cattail, which we believe is inventive, and we have a native cattail, uh, which is the broadleaf cattail, which is native but now confined to pretty much remnant marshes. And interestingly enough, and unknown to science until Laura discovered it and recorded in this book, native ca- the broadleaf cattail, uh, and she, des- she describes why in here, actually has a whole coterie of different bee species uh, that uh, are engaged in pollinating that cattail. So you might, if you get the book, you can read under Typhalatifolia, that broadleaf cattail, that really unusual relationship between bees and the broadleaf cattail. I, I don't know. It, it requires special water. Most of our water today that is either coming from stormwater or uh, runoff from agricultural land or whatever isn't really suitable for the native broadleaf cattail. Oh, so it would be tricky for him to try to drop it into a floating thing in the Chicago it, it, River. It wouldn't, I don't think it would work. All right. Uh, very interesting answer. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, it, when – when we're thinking about um, this, I know, Jerry, you've thought about how Native Americans have thought about the land, about how um, people in different faith communities have thought about the land through the years. Uh, could you talk a little about how that um, knowledge, the you know, relationship with the earth has, uh, is, is meaningful to us today and how we should understand our relationship? Well, our particular relationship is one where almost all of our resources, particularly the necessaries of life, come from distant lands and different peoples about whom we know very little or could care less. So our relationship locally is pretty abbreviated and actually abrogated. The native people who lived here or lived all over America actually had to have all resources necessary for life within walking distance. That meant that they had to curate and care for that land all as they saw it, all of the brothers and sisters, in such a manner that they would always be there to provide the dyes, the medicines, the food, the fiber, and all of the things necessary for daily life. So as the glaciers receded and the native and the people of the area took over, they co evolved their culture with native landscapes. And so the native landscapes then or the, the plants that evolved as remnant landscapes actually co-evolved with human culture. So when human culture, and it was, and it lasted until pretty much we got here, 
And then we turned our eyes away and started looking elsewhere for our resources. In so doing, we changed the habitat by withdrawing the annual fire, by withdrawing the harvesting techniques. This is a whole other discussion. Uh, But uh, the part of the habitat of native species and native remnants is a congenial relationship between human culture and them, a culture that's organized around the idea that Uh, Their relationship is for the benefit of the land and the plants and animals, not as a postcard or a uh, uh, some sort of backdrop or sort of feely good thing to do. Um, You know, it's uh, interesting that we've kind of almost screwed up the entirety of it. We've just barely got enough to for life to keep itself going. Yeah, that's right. But uh, just like just like a. A life starts with an egg, then there's two cells and four and and then uh, eight and 16 and, and, and 32. So also, uh, the, these little remnants that are here, if we nurture them and care for them, by degrees, over time, if our culture ever turns itself back toward a relationship with the earth, then by degrees, these lands could begin to expand. The native biodiversity could be, feel, have enough vigor, enough vital vigor to begin to move out into areas that currently are pretty degraded. And we could re-knit together uh, a lot of the, the, the landscape. And we have the biodiversity still here. What we're missing is the cultural relationship and the interest in doing so. So um, so that's a little bit about what Peggy Simonson was yeah, talking about earlier exactly. in the program, knitting, knitting together larger sections. And your book does have a, a grading scale for um, land and uh, its biodiversity. And the, 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 the remnant landscapes have lots more biodiversity oh, yeah. than even restored areas. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's a, getting into the weeds a bit on that. But things that, that are restorations rarely ever uh, uh, reach the level of diversity and tight warp and weft and interrelationships that you get in a remnant, a well-managed remnant. But uh, those even uh, just a, a, a meadow that's been restored to, say, the big prairie grasses and a few flowers, as undiverse as it is at the moment, maybe only three or four species for every, every four square feet, uh, it is beginning to restore the soil, and it's the soil that is so damaged. And so when you lose the organic matter in the soil, I hope you're not getting too much into the weeds, you lose the soil moisture, you lose the soil moisture, you lose the soil's capacity to thermoregulate in a way to have a stable temperature or a slowly changing temperature. And since most plants and animals are sort of cold-blooded, if you will, they, they don't respond well to soils that have been damaged and get too hot or too cold too fast. So bringing back the soils, even though it might not be a great restoration from a, a metric standpoint, just the act of growing those grasses in there and burning them regularly are slowly beginning the process of bringing back a soil which one day could become uh the 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 mother of uh the all of the of some of the biodiversity we still have here and there scattered around the region I'm talking with Dr. Jerry Willem, co-author of the book Flora of the Chicago Region, a Floristic and Ecological Synthesis, a 1,400-page documentation of nature in our area. It's a a great big book. People can see it. I mean, 1,400 pages. You you loaned me a copy for a a while, and it's uh, huge. And people get it at the Morton Arboretum, uh, places like that. It's available through the Morton Arboretum. Uh, but it is a, not an every man kind of thing. No, this is uh, <laughs> not. Uh, it probably, 
This is not a bodice buster. <laughs> no, this is, uh, you can also get it through the Chicago Academy, uh, through the uh, Indiana Academy of Sciences. They published it? They, they published it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's available through, by contact, go to, going to the Indiana Academy of Sciences webpage or go to the Morton Arboretum. Uh, I think there may be a, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's not the kind of, first of all, it's not the kind of book that people want on their shelves because it takes up space and <laughs> stores space and... It's a big one. It's a big one. <laughs> it's a research tool. It it's is a, a beautiful tool. thing. And uh, Mike McDonald, his book is My Journey into the Wilds of Chicago, the visually magisterial book. And you did the, did the pictures, uh, half the pictures anyway, yeah. for, for, the, for Jerry's book. Too. Yes. And, you know, I have a website called ChicagoNatureNow.com, and all this information we're talking about today boils down to this. Every single day between mid-April and mid-September, there's a National Park Quality Blooming event happening in our region. And you can go to that website, and if you want to volunteer to be a scout, uh, which I've been doing for free with other scouts for two years now, and uh, to, to increase the volunteer base. And you, once you go to these places, these showcase preserves, you'll fall in love. And so if people go to Chicago Nature Now, they can sign up for uh, an alert, and you will send an email out and say, hey, there are some really awesome blooms going here. Every single week during the blooming season, whoever subscribes gets an alert to exactly where to go right now. Not it won't be, it'll be peak, perfect blooms as far as you can see. And uh, your book is full of all those perfect blooms that uh, everyone can see. Uh, I, I marvel at some of the shots and the places, and it really made me want to get out. I go to my forest preserves that I go to all the time, time and time again. But there are so many in the region that you can see so many different things. It, your book helped me get out and look around some more. And what's interesting is, Every picture in the book is based on going out at the perfect time, correct? So I've kept track of that for 15 years and put that information out in Chicago Nature Now. I use that information now not just for my photography, but now to share that with the world so they can get peak bloom times. So that is uh, an awesome contribution, and I thank you both for your contributions to Chicago Nature. You're welcome. Thank you. Mike McDonald's the author of My Journey into the Wilds of Chicago, and Dr. Gerald Wilhelm is co-author of the book The Flora of the Chicago Region, A Floristic and Ecological Synthesis. Thanks for joining us and talking about the great biodiversity right here in Chicago. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to uh, talk with Oxfam and talk with that organization about their latest report on uh, inequality. It's uh, pretty eye-opening stuff. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.